Okay, so a little grid here, which I will put it on the website so that people can download it and, and fill it out. But um, obviously, the first and most serious, perhaps, of errors about God would be atheism, right? You're really missing the boat at this point. There's no God. Okay, well, you're so wrong, you couldn't be more wronger, to quote Larry the Cucumber. Uh, and all of these, I think, come in hard and soft varieties. Those for people who are, I'm on the internet and I want you to debate me and I'm an atheist. Um, and the, well, I don't want to, I don't care, I don't want to make trouble, but kind of practical uh, outliving of these errors about God. And we'll discuss which one is more dangerous or if one is preferable to the other. So the hard line version of atheism I think today we find most clearly uh, manifest in what's called the new atheism. It's kind of run its course and it's no longer, you know, on the cover of Time Magazine if Time Magazine hasn't already run its course and stopped being published. But it's still out there. People like Christopher Hitchens, who's now uh, no longer with us, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, books like The God Delusion, that are very in your face, um, a movement that says most people probably don't really believe in God, so urging everyone to make a choice. You know, if you went to college and kind of got your mind blown uh, in a geology class or something, and, or a philosophy class your sophomore year and went, I don't know about this God stuff I was taught, and yet you're still sort of trying to hold on to the God stuff, forget it, stop it come out as an atheist and, and, you know, knock it all down and, and stake your claim and stop being so wishy-washy about it. Uh, and that's still growing in popularity. Uh, the, the notion that science has explained everything and therefore a God, which was a God of the gaps in our scientific knowledge is no longer needed. Do you see this in your circles in your life? Yeah. Aaron, where do you see that? Um, acquaintances and friends that you know, you know through whatever, however you met them, but you're friends on social media, and you wouldn't necessarily know that much about them. Mm -hmm. You do because of that, and in extended family. Okay, I think a real mark of the new atheism or the hard atheism is the chip on the shoulder, uh, and uh, not content like. Like 99% of atheists that I know are just nice, friendly people, and they don't care if you believe in God, if it works for you, if it makes you happy. Um, but the, the new breed, they care for some reason. And before they become worm food and disappear forever into nothingness, they want to make sure that you don't have uh, any faith. I don't know why, but it's there. Um, that's obviously the most stark uh, error about God is to sit there using the breath that he gave you and the mind that he gave you to shout into the void that he doesn't exist. There is no God and I am so mad at him. Uh, soft atheism. I would say, practically speaking, agnosticism is practical atheism. Um, and do you know where that word comes from? 
We talked a whole bunch about this Greek word earlier. Uh, we were in the Johannine epistles. Gnosis, it's a Greek word, it means knowledge. Ah, you know that, like atheism says, no God. This is no knowledge. I, I, I don't think we can have knowledge about God. Maybe there's a God. I don't want to, you know, get in there and froth at the mouth and say, no, there's no God. There's absolutely no, nothing out there but, you know, stardust and blackness. But I'm not going to live my life based on some stories about him because I just don't think it's knowable. Right? If there is a God, maybe we find out when we die, maybe not. But we can't know now. I mean, how silly is that? That's practical atheism. Because the way you live under ordinary atheism, not the evangelical zealous kind, but ordinary atheism, and the way you live under ordinary agnosticism is essentially the same. Uh, and I have, for whatever reason, noticed a trend in the past, maybe even in the past like 15 years, uh, as I've been reading apologetical stuff and, and, and evangelism materials, that there's this idea that if you can move someone from atheism to agnosticism, you've made like a huge stride forward in trying to win them to Christ. Uh, and so a guy that, that I used to really respect his methods, I still do, I just don't, I just don't try to use them. Um, his whole thing was he'd engage with someone and say, are you an atheist? If they said yes, he'd say, okay, so there is no God. That's right. And he'd say, well, do you have all knowledge of everything that exists everywhere? And they'd say, well, obviously I don't have all knowledge of everything. He'd say, so there could be a God that exists in the 99.999% of what you don't know. And they'd say, well, I mean, I guess it's possible. And they'd say, so you're not an atheist, you're an agnostic. All right, we're already getting somewhere. Oh, wow. Are you really getting somewhere? That's the question. Not really. <laughs> Why not? Because... Um, you're just word playing around with things. You, you can't believe all that. I mean. Okay, it's just kind of a, yeah, a word game. Although, I guess the idea behind the word game is to make someone assent to something. The possibility of God. Get the shoe in the door. Perhaps if it keeps a conversation going, it is valuable. If they were going to slam the proverbial door on what I wanted to say to them about Jesus because they know there's not a God, and I get them to admit, well, maybe there, maybe there is. And I say, well, can I tell you what I think I know about God? Maybe there's value in that. But being an agnostic and being an atheist, at the end of the day, as far as their position standing before the Creator is not any different. But right? if it is on the way to something else then that's different. Because yeah. you could have somebody, like I'm just sort of thinking of someone who is a sophomore in college and has decided like, okay, hard atheism because my professor said this and I really respect that person. Mm -hmm. And then saying, well, well, what about this? Something they hadn't considered, putting a little doubt into their mind might get them to go longer, like you said, in the conversation. Not like you wouldn't leave them there. Right, and if, and if you do, that's, that's no help. Uh, in fact, perhaps then they... they were ill at ease with this idea of no God. When they stood out, you know, in a field on a summer night, somewhere where there's no light pollution, and looked up and said, oh my goodness, something happened here. Uh, look at all of this. And they see the Milky Way, but now instead of a disquiet of maybe I'm wrong, they go, oh, maybe this is that God thing that I sort of believe in, but don't really. Now, what, how does yeah. that help? Penny. Well... The agnostics have a Bible. 
I, I purchased it one time to read it to see what their belief was, but it was too intense. There's not an agnostic Bible. Penny, I don't, I'm, I'm quite sure there's not an agnostic Bible because it would be full of nothing. Because agnostic means no knowledge. So it would just say, here's what we know about God, and then be blank pages. There's a Gnostic Bible. Is that maybe what you're thinking of? It might be. Okay. They have a belief in um, this other woman being Adam's wife. Mm, you may be, yeah, you may be thinking of Gnostics rather than agnostics. I can't think of her name off here. Um, I know we hear a lot about polytheists during Jesus' time, but did they have atheists back then? Um, they probably had as many atheists as we do today. In Jesus' day, you had to pay lip service to the gods. So you'd have functional atheists who would go and make a, you know, especially Caesar, right? You had to acknowledge his divinity, but I'm sure there were many, most people, as today, who walk around going, yeah, I go to church once a year because my parents will freak out if I don't, but I don't believe in God at the end of the day. I mean, I'd live very differently if I did. In Psalms 14.1, right? Fool says in their heart, there is no God. Mm -hmm. So obviously, written on people's hearts, at least, in some level, there is no God. This is in the Psalms, you know. So yeah, long before Christ. Definitely a belief somewhere that there is no God. I think it's interesting, though, that it points out that they're they're still a fool, right? I mean, whether how loud you're going to be about your foolishness, Mm -hmm. I think is the difference here. Mm -hmm. One side's a little bit quieter about being foolish, maybe because they know... Or, or they have that reined in a little bit more, but, but, but both sides are still talking and yelling or believing or living out of foolishness. Um, yeah, and I think that um, agnostics that I know, like people who just don't talk about it, don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it, um, I think a lot of that comes from them not either not wanting to offend somebody or not wanting to be wrong in front of people and not wanting to have an argument because they don't want to be made a fool of. Well, and I know an awful lot of Christians who function on that side of the, this, on the right side too, the soft Christianity that says, yeah, it's very personal. I kind of believe in God, but I'm not going to talk about it. Um, and, and if an atheist could move you from the hard Christianity to the soft, that probably would be a move uh, for, for them. I, again, I don't know why. I don't know why they want that, uh, the new atheists. P.Z. Meyer, who, who went into a Catholic church and got a consecrated host and brought it home and live-streamed desecrating it. And I'm like, are you nine? What are you doing? Um, another soft atheism, I believe, uh, is going to be what, what we call <coughs> Kantian uh, transcendence. Now, if you've been around with us for a while, you know that after we say the name Kant, Immanuel Kant... Yes, we either retch or spit. I prefer, not real spit in the church, just miming spit. Kant patu, why? Because even though he had the best of motives, Kant uh, did so much damage to the church and it's still around today. Uh, what he taught that we're concerned with here is that God is way up here. He's transcendent, which God is transcendent, by the way. He's sovereign, he's over everything. He's He's can't, the heavens can't contain him. He's as high as you can think and infinitely higher. And then there's us down here. And then there is an ontological gap. And this gap is so large, it's impassable by us. We can't think about him or know about him. 
because of this gap. And so essentially, yeah, I believe there's a God, but how could I even begin to fathom a God, an infinite being? And in, in, Kant was doing this to try and protect God, who doesn't need to be protected. And in doing that, he, he wound up uh, creating a very strong uh, and enduring cultural wave that is still uh, having an effect today. And the notion people walking around, it's another form of agnosticism, but even in the church, you often find it. You'll say, well, that's a false teaching. And someone will say, well, who are we to know this stuff, right? I mean, how can we possibly know about God? This ontological gap, by the way, does exist. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we can't cross it. What's the flaw in this thinking? Jesus, Christmas. Jesus um, took away the gap. God crosses it. God can cross it, right? By coming to a prophet and saying, hey, write this down. By appearing to Moses in a burning bush and saying, this is what I'm about. By coming in the person of Christ and dwelling amongst us and saying, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now you don't have to cross this infinite gap. And, and the other problem with it is that God's not just transcendent. He's also imminent. So he's also here with us. He's as close as can possibly be. No one has had a more ironic name. Immanuel Kant. Yeah, yeah. Immanuel meaning God with us. Um, and one of the names given to Christ in, in Isaiah 9 or 7. Um, 714. Thanks, Roger. Yeah, it's very sad and it's very ironic. Yeah, that, the, that if he would have just at one point said, been signing his name and gone, oh, I've made a huge mistake. Um, but, but so there's that. This God that's so transcendent, he's so unknowable. Uh, and we often, I think, do this like Kant to try and kind of protect him way up there, and, and he's not subject to our theories or our, um, you know, philosophizing. He can take it, actually. So well, that also seems like an excuse not to think about things. The thing is that Kant thought about God more than you or I ever will. But I think but, functionally, that's how people would use it. That's an excuse not to. Okay, well, can't understand. Forget all these human yeah. systems, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and this is, I mean, I, I used to show uh, in a, a class that I taught on Baptist history and theology, uh, Facebook uh, what, profile of, of my friend Carrie from next door on Dean Street in Bay City that I knew when we were five, then I moved away, and then we connected again on uh, Facebook, and I was like, I wonder what she's up to, and I clicked about, and under religion it said, um, spiritualist, I'll take my God without rites and rituals and you know, some other kind of, and, and this very popular uh, millennial Gen X, kind of even permeating all of our, our society notion that, well, yeah, I believe in God, but we can't put him in this box that is religion. Um, but what if he said, this is who I, I mean, that's like saying, I love my wife, but I'm not going to put her in a box. So when it's time to buy her Christmas gifts, I'm not going to think about what she's told me about what she likes and dislikes. Uh, you know, she might have told me that this kind of perfume makes her want to puke. But if I don't get it for her, isn't that sort of putting her in a box? Um, she's so complex and transcendent, I could never understand her, right? Um, I mean, sometimes it's true. But, but about, about the things she's told me, I can't understand. Plus, if he's just transcendent, why can't he make himself known? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's, that's the point. If he's, yeah. if he's that yeah, if he's that transcendent within his sovereign ability would be 
to reveal himself to us. It's not like that's the one thing that's too hard for him. I mean, uh, um, creation itself, itself reveals him. So let's move down to polytheism. Uh, the more formal version would be a tribal or geographic view. This is the Old Testament world, right? People are always confused about Israel's God because Israel's God is a weird God. Everyone else's God is God of that people or God of that place. So even, um, you remember in 722 BC, Richard's the only one who was around, but <coughs> low blow, just seeing if you're awake. And uh, they came in, the Assyrians, and they dragged away half the people. And then they gathered up half the people. We were just talking about this when we were talking about uh, some, uh, Philip in Samaria. Uh, and then brought in other people, mixed them all up, and said, there, we've erased their national identity. So that now, uh, they won't want to rebel against us. They won't say, we're Israel, and they're Assyria. They'll say, oh, we're Samaritans, or we're whatever we are. We're some colony. So that worked quite well, except at some point, someone said, things aren't going well this year. Crop yield is down. It's not as uh, lucrative as we thought it would be probably what happened is we have offended the gods of the land. So what did the Assyrians do? They brought in priests. Brought in priests, teach them how to worship the god of the land, preferably in a way that isn't rooted in some kind of monarchy or nationalism. And they did just that. And ultimately the result of that is the Samaritan religion. So even though they had conquered that land, showing that their gods were more powerful than Israel's god, in their minds, they still brought in priests. They say, because it's tied to this space. That is, a, remember that when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading about um, the Philistines and the and Israelites battling and the Ark of the Covenant is captured, when you're, when you're reading all these things, Israel has this notion that their God is the God who is, and he is everywhere. And he created heaven and earth, and he's all powerful. And most other city-states and peoples around are like, well, our God is definitely God here. Our God is definitely God in the hills. Our God is definitely God uh, of the seashore. Like, like everybody had their own, and there was room for this kind of whole cast of, of divinities. Um, or you have uh, animism, which is common in uh, un kind of unreached peoples in South America, for example. Uh, and, and this is, it makes more sense to me. Uh, if you're going to be religious, which Paul says, you know, everybody's religious to some degree because they've seen the majesty of creation. Um, this is like zone defense, right? Instead of man-on-man uh, -man defense, this is, there's a God of rivers. Uh, Egypt kind of had a little of this going on too. Uh, there's a God of, you know, there's a sun God. There's, so there's kind of every natural phenomenon has a God associated with it. Uh, no, Greeks just had a pantheon of gods um, that were all like little toddlers with semi-divine uh, powers. Uh, and, and honestly, is, is this, you know, I'm sure every atheist would look down on, oh, those silly tribal people who think that uh, it has, there has to be a god to make the river flow and there has to be a god to make the sun come up. I think they're wiser than the atheist. Uh, they're acknowledging, they're looking around the world and acknowledging this is too amazing to be uh, nothing, to have, to have arisen by itself 
uh, order from chaos without any hand to guide it. Um, or you have also kind of Hinduism, uh, thousands of gods. Um, ultimately, if you get into areas where Catholicism uh, supplanted a animistic view and, and it wasn't done well, uh, there was what's called syncretism, the mixing of religions. You can have a functional polytheism there um, because you'll have a different saint for every kind of area of life. And instead of praying to God, we pray to that saint, and they almost function like gods. Um, that's, I'm saying, not official Catholic doctrine uh, in which the saints intercede for you, but the way it plays out in areas where uh, perhaps there were some lazy missionaries who were just like, uh, this God, St. Anthony, this God, this main goddess, Mary, uh, and they just kind of, all right, my work here is done. Um, that, that has happened as well. The, the soft form of polytheism, uh, in question five, the next question, which I said we were not only going to get to, yeah. but we were also going to finish and finish the next one today. I was way off course, you guys. Um, in the next question, we're going to talk about the Trinity. Trinitarian heresies often manifest and play out as polytheism. I hear a lot of that. Um, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in God, and I believe in... You know, hold on a minute. Uh, let's suss out what you mean by what you just said. Um, when you say God, you mean the Father, right? Oh, no, no, I believe in God and Jesus. Okay, Arianism now. We've got more than one God. Open the Jehovah's Witness Bible. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, right? So... The notion of Mormonism too, right? We have many people rising, being elevated to godhood. Um, that's fairly common. Uh, we, we think of polytheism as being uh, this uh, ancient, you know, pre-monotheistic thing, uh, but it's not. It's, it's a uh, perversion of, of monotheism. From the very, very beginning, we had monotheism. That's what, that's what Genesis 1 tells us anyway. So Other, are you saying, are you saying those, that's soft? Yeah. Oh my. Um, pantheism. Does anyone know what that is? Worshiping the god Pan, who is like half goat, half man. So that's not what it is. Is God is saying God is in a tree or in God is everything. in a piece of wood? And pantheism is. Would that be like actual Gnosticism? Pantheism, and then yeah, my next. Topic was pan n theism. What does n mean? In. in. Yep. What does pan mean? Pandemic. Everywhere. All. Pan pos pos upon. Um, all. All. So we've got pantheism is all. The Everything is God. Everything is God. That's deep, right? <laughs> Everything is kind of God. That's that's out there. I. Um, well, depending on your worldview, and, and I mean, there are, there are very, very wise thinkers from the world's point of view who, who would say, I believe in God. I think it's all God. Um, it doesn't make sense from a biblical point of view, no. Panentheism, God is in everything. So that makes more sense. I, I always think, when I think of panentheism, of that movie, Evan Almighty. Remember that? Um, it had uh, Steve Carell... And he had to build an ark. 
and he was reading Ark Building for Dummies. It was a funny movie. Um, and he, he's reading it, and he flips over to the back, and he reads God's bio, and God is Morgan Freeman. And uh, it says, uh, you know, God is a creator of heaven and earth. Uh, he is in all things, and he has more than six billion children, or something like that. Uh, and it's a great laugh line, but A, he doesn't have more than six billion children, and B, uh, he's not in all things. That's panentheism. Is God everywhere? Yes. So if you want to, again, with the word games, say, is he in this pulpit? He's everywhere. He is everywhere present. But with panentheism, we mean kind of, you know, God's in that deer. God's in. And so we treat everything with kind of this uh, reverence because of God being in it. Were the, were the Gnostics technically polytheists? Because you said they believe in different gods, don't they? Well, they believed in the Demiurge and, and a, I mean, I guess, yeah, they kind of were double theists. So then if you're polytheist, a pan-theist, you treat everything as holy, and even so though holy holy. means, yeah, so nothing's holy. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, and, and some people, most people who hold to this notion are very inconsistent. Uh, an example, you'd have, to be, you'd have to live your whole life very differently. For example, Janice nuns, right? They wear something over their face so they won't breathe in. But, and they, all living things are, are sacred. Right. Isn't that so they don't breathe in any bugs and kill them. They walk with a broom sweeping very carefully to make sure they don't step on you know, any beetles or anything. Uh, if, if they were about to be attacked by a tiger and someone said, I got this, they'd say, no, the tiger's you know, just as sacred as me. Respect for that consistency, absolutely. But they still have to eat something, and even if they're vegetarians, they're still eating plants, and if God's in those... Oh! I think that there's, uh, within the belief system, something distinguishing plant life from, from uh, animal life. I mean, the, the plant doesn't have a spirit, right? Well, I hope not. <laughs> Although I remember a few years ago, a lot of people were uh, posting this thing that, that uh, plants could tell when they were being eaten. Like yeah. certain plants were recoiling and they're like, you, you rotten vegetarians, I can hear your salad screaming. Um, but, but you also have like, would, so would panentheism be more, or animism, which one of those would be what a lot of Native American tribes would have? Animism, because it's a god. Okay, because it's a separate God. Yeah. Not that, because they each have their own little spirit, and then, because I know that they're, if they are going to be, you know, killing and eating something, they might do some sort of, you know, prayer or mm -hmm. ceremony or, you know, it's... A great respect for yeah, creation, right. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so great respect for creation, but perhaps um, the danger can be... And even in something good like environmentalism, the danger can also often be to elevate creation to God's status, which, I mean, read the book of Romans, that's like the original sin and all subsequent sins summed up, uh, worshiping the created things instead of the creator who is forever praised, amen. So, uh, yeah, good thing perhaps taken to a, a destructive extreme. Uh, Self-theism. This is a, both of these third and fourth ones are iffy terms. I didn't make either of them up, but you won't find them in your 
handbook of theology. Um, <clears throat> the idea that I'm God. So there must be a God. Also, it's me. Um, we see this in a few cases in history. Real megalomania. Um, we don't know if any Caesars actually thought they were God. Probably some of them because there was crazy. Uh, I think uh, the most effective ones realized that was just a good tool to use. But some of them thought they were gods. Uh, you have King Herod who accepts praise as God uh, and then is struck down. Um, maybe there's even a little of this in Nebuchadnezzar as he looks out and says, Behold, Babylon the great, which I have built, which I have created, doesn't give any uh, of the worship or glory to God, but takes it for himself. There aren't many people out there, though, who would say, you know, th these are the people in the loony bin. I'm Jesus. Oh, okay. You know, get back on the bus. Remember uh, that movie with Michael Keaton? Um, Dream Team from the 80s? Nobody? There was one, one it was a group of uh, people out of the insane asylum and they are free in New York City. It's very funny. And now that I think about it, it's probably really un-PC and, and uh, messed up. But one of them thought he was Jesus and he's walking through the hospital and there's somebody on the gurney and he says, Arise and walk, my son. And the camera keeps panning, and in the background, you see the guy get up and just fall down on his face. It's hilarious. Um, but then there's, there's also uh, the notion of kind of the New Age, which oh, the church was really afraid of when I was a kid. New Age is everywhere. Um, Shirley MacLaine standing on a beach shouting, I am God! I am God! Uh, Frank Peretti had a great kind of comedy routine he did. Uh, in in uh, that same era, and he talked about God's point of view, you know, going, hey, Gabriel, Michael, look at this. And she's going, the, the, the notion that there's just such denial involved in this. Uh, but think about it, you know, Morgan Freeman, who played God in Bruce Almighty, Evan Almighty, was asked, is it odd for you to play God? And he said, no, I am God. So are you. We're, we're all kind of part of God. We're all God. This is a way to be a theist, I guess, but not have to submit to anyone because, hey, it's just me. I'm very special. Uh, and I, now I think we think of only like hippies and people who are obsessed with crystals and tarot cards and stuff really getting into what we used to call New Age, which uh, looked like it was going to be the next big thing. But a lot of people, most people maybe live as if I am God. And it's, it's a dangerous thing. So the, the soft version of this would be what I call mirror theology. Uh, God exists, and he's got to be like me, just a better version of me. Well, you hear the arguments all the time. I don't think God would, A, because I would never do that. God's not going to send someone to hell. could never do that. If I created people and they rebelled against me, I mean, even I would be nice enough to say, it's okay, never mind. So God must be, so the idea that you can kind of think your way from you up to God. They call it natural theology, and it's super unnatural. It's not the way to know God. Starting with Zach, you can go Zach to the nth degree, and you're not any closer to God. You're just magnifying my sins and flaws and how even... Even the good things I do are tainted by the flesh. So that's, in, in essence, self-theism. Who, who can open quickly to Philippians 3, 18 to 19? 
swords drawn, etc. All right, let's hear verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The God is their belly, meaning, of course, the belly often. We were talking about this in our men's group last, last time. The belly is often a stand-in for the appetites of the flesh. Um, the idea that whatever I want, that becomes my God. And often because I want it, it becomes my identity. And if God loves me, he's cool with this. And so as long as I can tie something into who I am, and I say, well, that must be what God wants for me. It's a form of self-theism because my God is just a reflection of me. It's like that scene in Curious George. Curious George is a movie I've seen 378,000 times because Calvin wanted to watch it every day from when he was two and a half until when he was about four. And there's a scene where this device, which was supposed to uh, take an object and project it really big in 3D, gets flipped on in the back of a truck and Curious George is just in the truck and, and, and it is projecting him and it looks like a giant ape is terrorizing the city. That's essentially the way a lot of people view God. Just click that on and I will kind of worship at the altar of a bigger me. I don't know how that's satisfying and I know many people who've come to the end of that and found it to be completely unsatisfying and you have a choice then. You're at a fork in the road. Either I repent of that and seek God's face based on how he has described himself and say, he's probably nothing like me. <laughs> there's, there's only the connection of his image, which remains in me. Um, or I go the other route and say, well, I tried that God thing and that was no good. So atheism or agnosticism or whatever the case. Uh, and I would also say there's some dangers in, in uh, extreme areas of kind of the contemplative tradition. Uh, in finding God in me. Uh, any little voice or whisper I hear in myself must be God. And, you know, what you wind up with Jesus calling, right? Um, you know, just take the cap off my pen, clear my mind, and just start writing. Uh, this is dangerous on a number of levels. Uh, automatic writing, you're letting whatever spirit there is. But m more than that, I'm writing it and attributing it to God. And that's, that's a grave error. And then uh, un, untheism. What does that mean? It means essentially believing in a God that's not a God. Uh, it has all the dressings, all the, the outward look of being theism. But when you look a little closer at the object of the worship, it's, it's just simply doesn't meet the base criteria for what a God is, what God would be. Uh, the hard version would be what's called openness theology. This is where the, this being dated comes into play. Uh, 10 and 15 years ago, there was a book called The Openness of God by Clark Pinnock. And there was a lot of people debating this stuff. The idea that God, he's not really entirely in control. He's kind of <clears throat> waiting to see how things pan out like we all are. And he's in time with us in his essence. Um, he can make promises in the Old Testament with pretty good confidence that they'll be fulfilled because he's so powerful, but he's not standing outside of time sovereign. He's growing and kind of 
there, there's this notion of God being very much like us. And basically what it is, is taking process theology and, and trying to make it popular and take away some of its uh, downfall. And you wind up with a God who's not God, because it's a God who's not ultimately all-powerful. Uh, and then the soft version of it, um, <laughs> my sheet says emergent church, but that's dead. Uh, but there's still the vestiges, the, the people who say, I want to be a Christian, I want to go to church, I want to be part of a community, I want to have a spiritual life. But rather than do this and say God is so transcendent, he's unknowable, I say, forget that. No, God is just imminent. He's, he's right in and upside down. Oh, that's backwards. Eh. Uh, he's just, I have a master's degree. I can't do that. <laughs> he's just imminent. He's, he's just here with us. And therefore, uh, he's so knowable that what I know about him and what I know about myself kind of blend together. Uh, what I know and believe about him is subject to shift, not uh, over years of study, study rather, as all of us have, our theology has grown and, and we go, wow, that was wrong. But from moment to moment, just kind of in flux all the time. Uh, and it, it winds up being sort of the opposite of Kant's error. And not only God, but truth are in this category. So imminent that they're kind of with us and made out of jello. And, you know, what's the difference between a solid and a liquid? Liquid always takes on the form of whatever container you put it in. So God and truth become like that. And they're in a Zach-shaped container. What do you know? God's thinking the same things I'm thinking. And when you read that Bible verse and you proclaim, this is who God is, I sort of scoff and look down on you for being unsophisticated. Uh, don't you recognize how imminent God is? This tension you're probably seeing is then incredibly important to maintain that God is transcendent and imminent. And this becomes a theme in all of theology. When there's a tension, you do not want to alleviate the tension. You want to embrace the tension. So if you solve the problem. We don't like tension, right? If you, if you solve the problem and say, there, now it, all, it feels good. It doesn't, it doesn't make me squirm anymore. You've taken away some vital aspect of who God is. A, a very simple example would be, as we look at the Trinity, oh, next week, um, God is three. God is one. At the same time, there is a great tension there. What are two ways you could, three ways you could alleviate it? One would be God's three. The oneness is just sort of, you know, they're all on the same page, but three gods, polytheism. By alleviating the tension, you have created heresy now. Uh, the other way, go to the other side. No, 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 God's one. The three, that's just three different roles he plays. All right, modalism, we'll suss that out next time. Or you could say, let's split the difference. God is three, God is one. How about God is two? That's a heresy so odd that there's not even a name for it. So you, you, you don't want to alleviate the tension. You want to embrace the tension because in that tension is the reminder that God is beyond our ability to fully grasp. And that's where the need for faith comes in. 
And in embracing the tension, I think our faith is exercised and strengthened. And it's not turning your brain off and saying, I'm going to believe a contradiction. There's a difference between a contradiction and a, a tension. A contradiction would be uh, something as A and non-A at the same time in the same sense. You know, um, I'm tall and short at the same time in the same sense. I'm actually six foot four and one foot two inches at the same time. And I don't mean that when I lay down, that's how tall I am. In the same sense, at the same that's a contradiction. It's nonsense. To believe that would be foolish. But to say, I'm, God is transcendent, God is imminent, these things are not contradictory. There's just a tension here. And, and we're going to see that as we look at all the different loci of theology going through the catechism, uh, that this is, this is a key. If you can embrace the tension, if you can make it um, through this, if you can let it make you squirm, in the squirming, I think, is where we come to know more about God much of the time. In, in the being uncomfortable as we think about him and not taking the quick shortcut of Trinity. Oh, no, no, no. That's like an egg. You've got the shell. You've got the white. You've got the yolk. But they're all one egg. Well, there. I, I made it easy for you. Yeah, I also gave you a heresy. So embrace the tension. Roger, what are your thoughts about oh. I think it's great that we're talking about the transcendence and the eminence because I think Advent is one of the greatest examples of that tension. You see the transcendence and the eminence in Advent. How? Because Don't leave us hanging, Roger. Huh? You see all these prophecies in the Old Testament being fulfilled at the same time as God is becoming more eminent in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Mary is talking about God takes peasants and raises them up and takes kings and just, you know, knocks them down. And at the same time, this baby that's being conceived in her is, that's as imminent as you get, right? And as intimate as you get. I've never had a baby inside of me, but some of you have. Pretty intimate situation. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're right, Roger. Very, very good time of year for us to wrestle with the tension between the transcendent and the imminent. And you see that. Uh, especially in Christ's uh, incarnation. Absolutely. Anyone else have any other thoughts on any of these uh, errors? It's not an exhaustive list. We're always inventing new uh, ways, although usually when someone falls into an error and they think it's new, it's old. I think Hans Feeney had a, a meme that said, had a guy saying, oh, no, no, it was Adam Ford in uh, uh, his comics. I have some new ideas about God. Translation, I hold to some old heresies about God. <laughs> All right, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then there's coffee to be drunk. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the chance to, to just think about these things and, and wrestle with them. And Lord, we do pray that in the, the tension of trying to use finite minds to understand an infinite, perfect, eternal, unchangeable God, that Lord, we would... In that, in that struggle, our, our understanding would stretch, and we would understand even just a little more of who you are, of how amazing you are, of, of the, the wonder and the, the awe that we should feel in encountering you. And Lord, that we would remember you are imminent and you are more powerful than anything uh, that, that we have ever encountered or heard about or read about or seen. And Lord, you are, you are transcendent and imminent 
and, and here with us. And Lord, we're so thankful that, that you are a God that is, that is both God near at hand and God afar, that, that Lord, we can trust you with our own little problems and, and the, the worries and struggles and sadness of our heart, as well as with the enormous problems we read about and see on the news. And, and Lord, we know you're in control and that you are a good God. And, and we pray that as we wrestle with these things during Advent, we would come to a, a deeper understanding and appreciation of who you are. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.